Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in this morning to work in us and among us, opening up your word, displaying the beauties of Christ and the, the value that he is to us and how we respond to um, difficulties, how we respond to joy, how we respond to the circumstances of life knowing that when it's all said and done, He is ours and we are His. So I pray that as we go through this next passage that we keep that in mind, that, that Christ is worth it and that we uh, pursue hearts that love Him more than anything that would distract us from the single purpose of glorifying Him and how we live and how we speak and how we move and act in, in all areas, um, in this community and in our relationships with those on the outside. We pray that we would be focused on making much of Him. Thank you for the examples that you give us in Scripture of men who did that. And thank you for Paul, the, the history that we have from Luke's pen of the trials of Paul, the the dedication and zeal of Paul to make much of Jesus in whatever circumstance he was in. We need to see that. We need to own that. And we need to emulate that. And so we, we thank you that you're gracious to us to provide for us a word that is objective and true that we can feast on. We trust that we will do so again this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Acts 22. Acts 22. Um, when we last saw Paul, he had been beaten half to death by the Jews in the temple. Remember that? What was going on there? They were mad. They were mad about what? <clears throat> like what? what? What were they claiming that he had done? They took Gentiles into the temple. That was the... Kind of a big thing. Kind of a is that a is that a serious thing? Well, they usually kill them. They usually kill them. So there's a death penalty attached to that, defiling the temple, put, bringing Gentiles past the court of the Gentiles into the, I mean, the court of the women, and they couldn't even go to the court of the women. I mean, that tells you something. So what happens with this? They're beating Paul, right? And the tribune sends down some centurions. He goes down there with probably at least 200 soldiers. And in order to stop the rioting that's going on around Paul, he puts Paul in chains. And he takes him to the barracks. What's the, what's the exchange there between Paul and the tribune? What do we learn from that? Who does this tribune think Paul is? Thought he was an insurrectionist to try to overthrow some things a while back. Some Egyptian insurrectionist, right? I mean, he even gets the yeah. he gets the ethnicity wrong. Um, he thinks he's an Egyptian insurrectionist uh, that had that had led a um, a revolt. Uh, He'd gotten all these guys out in the desert and told them that, that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. They could attack the Romans and they'd have easy work of it. How'd that go? Poorly. Poorly. And so they, the, the, the tribune is thinking that this guy's come back to Jerusalem and his former followers have seen him and were paying him back 
for the, the slaughter that he led them into, right? So that's what he, in his mind. But he changes his opinion when he hears Paul speak. He speaks very eloquent Greek, polished Greek. And what does Paul ask him to do as he's staggering around half-beaten? He wants to address the crowd, the crowd that was the crowd that was beating him. He wants to talk to them, uh, and and rather than going in the safety of the barracks, he wants to turn around and face them again. Now, at this moment, what would you expect him to say? As he turns around and faces the Jewish crowd, what would you expect Paul to say? Probably defend his actions. Defend his actions. In what way? What would you expect that defense to look like? I didn't, I didn't bring these people into the temple. Yeah. Nobody saw me bring a Gentile into the court of the women. What are you talking about? Name one person who saw that, right? You'd want to face that accuser. What else would you expect him to say? Is there anything else? I'm a faithful Jew, right? I haven't told people to forsake Moses. This speech is the beginning of Paul's testimony to the Jews through the end of, really, through chapter 26. This is a series of speeches that are basically Paul's defense of who he is, what he's done in relationship to sharing Christianity with the Gentiles, starts with he's a faithful Jew. And you see the beginning of that argument here. His, uh, it, it's primarily established, it's primarily aimed at establishing his commitment to Judaism. At this point, Christianity is seen as a subset or a sect of Judaism. And Paul is working that. I'm still a faithful Jew. Um, he couldn't do that through the Nazarite vow. He was trying to do that, right? He was trying to go to the temple, show his dedication to Judaism, his faithfulness and his piety by paying for some guys who were doing the Nazarite vow and doing his own purification thing. He got interrupted with the fists of the crowd. And so now he's going to try to do that by speaking to them. And he does it by simply relaying his own history. So you look at chapter 22. It says he addressed them in, in the Hebrew language. Now, why would he, why would he do it in Hebrew, incidentally? We, we talked about that last, last time. He's bridging the gap. He's, he talks to the tribune in Greek, right? And then he talks to the, the, the Jews in Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect of Aramaic, which would, again, I'm, to, to Greeks I'm a Greek, to Jews I'm a Jew, that may win some to Christ. That's, the, that's the, the, the motif we see here again and again. And he starts out with this way. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in the bonds in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. How does he start this? What is his first line of, he says, I'm giving you a defense. Incidentally, the word there is apologia. Have we heard that before? He gives a defense of his actions. Does he even address, what is he not addressing here? The immediate accusations he's not even, he's not even bringing up. He starts with his own history. And what is his history? What does he say? What are the verbs that are used uh, there in, uh, in that first section in, in verse 3? What are the verbs that are used? The action verbs. I'm a Jew. What? Born in Tarsus. But what? Brought up here. Brought up in Jerusalem and what? Educated. Educated at the foot of whom? Okay, who's that guy? That seems important. He's a Pharisee. He was a, he was a, a Jewish scholar of the time, a rabbinic scholar of the time. He taught in the, in the school of Hillel. It's a very big deal. The dominant Jewish thinker of the day. Right? And Paul is learning from him from a very young age. Brought up in Jerusalem. Most people thought he was brought up in Tarsus, came over later. No, his family must have moved from Tarsus early on to Jerusalem. And so as a child, he's being brought up in the law of the fathers, he calls it. The, the, um, the, the, the strict uh, pharisaical understanding of the law. Um, all right, so he is addressing not the individual charges. He's addressing the larger issue, his faithfulness to Judaism. And, and we're going to see this defense fleshed out. We'll see here it gets kind of cut off. But this defense gets fleshed out later on. It's the same defense every time before, before the, the, the remaining audiences he has in, in the book of Acts. And so, so Paul's argument here, he begins with, I'm a faithful Jew. And it's okay to be a faithful Jew and to be a Christian. And to be uh, in the way, he calls it. And he uses his native t their native tongue to bring a hush over the crowd. Somebody likened this, I think it was F.F. Bruce, likened this to, um, to uh, Scottish revolters hearing an Englishman speak in Gaelic. Or Irish revolters hearing an Englishman speaking in Gaelic, it shocks them, and so they, you know, they get quiet. I thought that was kind of funny, but anyway, so you have you have him addressing them in their own language, hitting on this idea that he was born in Tarsus, brought up or raised in Jerusalem, and educated. And this, interestingly enough, that born, brought up, raised, uh, and 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 uh, and educated, that's a typical Greek biography. A real quick, a real quick uh, elite Greek training kind of thing. And so he's signaling to them, I'm not a flake. I'm well educated. And he's speaking to them in, in Hebrew, but uh, um, using that common fixed biographical formula that was in, in a lot of Greek writings. All right, so why is he bringing up, he's, he, he was brought up in Jerusalem again? Why is he bringing that? Bringing that up, why is that significant? To show that he knows 
the law and he knows, you know, he's not an idiot, like he said, and he knows how things work and that he didn't flippantly do these things that they claimed that he did. He's on the home team. He's on the home team. He's not, he's not on the outer rim of Judaism. He's in the center court, right? He, he's not some um, half-cocked, Diaspora Jew out in the, at the outer rim of the empire. He's a homeboy, right? He's right in the middle of Jerusalem. He's taught by the best of the best. He knows his stuff. He's not from the outer rim. Gamaliel the elder, the, the, the leading rabbinic scholar of the day, is the same guy that we, heard, we saw earlier uh, in Acts that told the council, if this is from God, you can't stop it. But if it's not, you can't keep it going. That's <laughs> basically what he told them. He, we've already seen this guy who was Paul's teacher. So the, the significance of bringing all this up is to lay the groundwork that Paul's former life is marked by a zeal for the law. He knows the law. And it matched or exceeded theirs. You've got all these guys worried about, did he bring a Gentile into the temple? And yet willing to you know, beat a man unaccused or, or un, untried. And yet, how many of them sat at the feet of Gamaliel? This is the thrust of his argument. I'm a Jew among I'm, I'm more of a Jew than you are, is really what he's saying. So where did that zeal lead him as it relates to Christianity? What, where did that take him? What does he testify that he was doing? Well, in a way, he was telling them that he has done the same thing as he, they were doing to him. He was in their field. He was a persecutor of the church. Yeah. Yeah. So he's talking about uh, persecuting them to death. Uh, and, and he's including Stephen, obviously, in this. But others, too. He's imprisoning men and women. We talked about that when we were at that uh, in, in chapter 9. He's imprisoning men and women. His zeal is so great for this. Um, notice that he calls it the way. We've seen this before. And again, this is, a, this is a label for Christianity that placed it still within Judaism. This is a common way of referring to it. But rather than, uh, rather than it being a separate religion. But, but the thing too, the way, the way Paul uses it, it links Judaism and Jesus. Because it says it's a way within Judaism, but... Jesus is the only way, the exclusive way. And Paul's argument here is that true Judaism culminates in Christianity. True Judaism recognizes its Messiah. So what's the implication? You're false Jews, right? If you really want to be a Jew, you'd be with me. That, he's laying the groundwork to that. And... and how is he laying the groundwork? This is also interesting. This is a common thread in Christianity. How is he laying the groundwork? What is he using? Is he using philosophical arguments here? No. What is he saying? I was born in Tarsus. Can that be verified? Yes. I was raised in Jerusalem. Can that be verified? I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Can, can that be verified? Well, ask him. He knows me. I was zealous for the law. I persecuted Christians. Can that be verified? Yeah, ask the, ask the council. Ask the high priest. They gave me these letters. Everything he's doing is a historical claim that can either be verified or denied. 
it's, it's not this, well, if we read it, you know, it's not any of that stuff. If we combine Greek philosophy with the Old Testament, we can get that. No, there's none of that. This is what happened. It's a factual, historical claim that he's making, like he makes for the resurrection. All right, in all of this, there are witnesses. And there are credible witnesses, the high priest, the Pharisees, and Gamaliel. Let's look at verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now we've seen this before. We saw it in chapter 9. This is the second of three uh, recounts or accounts of Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. The first was Luke's third person description in chapter 9. And these last two that we're going to see are here and then again later, I think in chapter 24. They're coming from Paul's own mouth. And they're delivered in the course of these speeches. They parallel all each other, but they differ in some details. And we'll get to that here in a minute. The most striking difference uh, uh, are, are in Paul's, the most stri striking differences are in Paul's speeches. He, he adds some details or emphasizes some things in one setting that he doesn't in another. Um, for example, in this one, we're going to see that he makes reference to Ananias. And Ananias is a devout Jew, and everybody respects him. But in his testimony to, uh, before Agrippa, Ananias is not even mentioned because Gentiles don't care about him being a devout Jew. So you see this, this kind of play uh, of what he emphasizes on the facts depending on the audience and what's significant to them. So what's the significance that this vision happened at noon? What's the big deal there? That's direct sunlight, so the light's already bright. So if something brighter than the sun hits you, it's significant. Yeah, that kind of makes an impression on somebody, if something brighter than the sun. Now, we did the eclipse recently, right? We did the... Well, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. We, we, you're right. We declared it. I, I spoke it into existence because faith is the vehicle of whatever. Um, so, so you have, um, you, you have the, the eclipse thing, and we, we, have, to, we have to do the little light things with the little the little boxes that you, the kids make in the thing and it's kind of goofy you feel like a, a, a complete idiot with those things on <laughs> so you have that right we can't even look at it whenever it's dimmed you have noonday which is huge and then the brightness of the light here is such that he, he is blinded uh, this is a this is a, 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 an effort by Paul to describe um, this amazing uh, event is not a dream at night. He, he had knocked down a few and gone to sleep and had this vision. This is middle of the day, bright noon, and a brighter light still than the sun is shining down on, his, on he and who else? 
on the guys around him. And there's some disagreement here between Luke's account and Paul's account. The, the, the guys uh, in Luke's account, there's, a, there's a more of an emphasis on uh, seeing. In Paul's account, there's more of an emphasis on, on um, I'm sorry, it's the other way. Paul's emphasis on the companion seeing the light, and Luke's emphasis is on them hearing the voice. But both make the same point. There are witnesses. And there are witnesses, there are witnesses to something objective that happened with this experience. Um, how does he refer to Jesus here? What is anything unique about how he refers to Jesus? He, he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. of Nazareth. It's the only time that's referenced in the entire uh, account of Luke in Acts. Jesus of Nazareth. Why do you think he uses it here? He was a Jew. He was a Jew. Had you too? He, he bringing out the Jewishness of Jesus again. What's the point? It's a I'm faithful. I'm a faithful Jew, following a faithful Jew. And also for him uh, during that time of not being a believer in Jesus, uh, to seeing him as the Messiah pre-salvation, being saved after the, the story happens. Uh, he's declaring. Yeah, the guy you just named Lord, it's the guy that uh, was pulled on the cross not too long ago. Again, it's an objective historical reference. Who is Jesus? We all know who. We know what happened in Jerusalem with him. It's the same guy, identifying the Jewishness and the historical fact that Jesus is um, is the one he's talking to. Um, so this noontime. Big light, voice, and, and the light happening. Uh, it, this is not a still small voice during his quiet time. This is a, a massive objective event. And these guys who are with them heard a sound but didn't receive the message. They saw the light but they didn't see the risen Christ. It wasn't their experience, but there are objective things about the experience that they are able to testify to. It was, it was for Paul that this was going on. So Paul addresses Jesus as Lord here. And you get the sense, I mean, he's wishing that they would too. He's a good Jew, addressing Jesus as Lord. You can too, and you should. Um, it's not inappropriate. It's not inappropriate for a faithful Jew to confess Jesus as Lord. You're looking at one. So the brightness of the light overwhelmed the noonday sun, such that he had to be led by the hand to Damascus. And this, again is an objective fact that was witnessed. So let's look at uh, verse, uh, 20, uh, verse 12. And when Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, <clears throat> Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. He, he starts this. How does he introduce Ananias, by the way? What does he, what does he call him? A devout man according to the law. Like Paul is. So now you got two guys 
that he's referencing, guys, uh, a guy who in Damascus the Jews think of very highly as a devout man according to the law, who's also a Christian. So Ananias, like Paul, was a devout Jew who believed in the risen Christ. They knew him. They respected him. They could ask him about the things Paul was telling. It's fact-based. It's history-based. And notice uh, Ananias' speech to Paul, the God of our fathers. Again, it's very reverential to Jewish history. Uh, it sounds very Jewish and very Old Testament, and yet he calls Jesus what? The just one, some translations have, and other, other translations will have the righteous one. This is a messianic title. This devout Jew, Ananias, is telling Paul, you've seen our Messiah. And he does it in a very Jewish way. You have Ananias calling Christ the righteous one. And that's the title that was used by Peter and Stephen previously, remember, uh, when we went through that. So, whom does Ananias say Paul will be a witness to? This is curious. Who does he say? Everyone. To everyone. Does that include Gentiles, by the way? Now, we know, I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story. At the end of this, when he gets to Gentiles, the crowd freaks out. When he says the word Gentiles, the crowd freaks. Why don't they freak here? It's like it didn't click. That this devout Jew Ananias is saying, you're going to be preaching the gospel to every everyone. Ah, interesting. We are everyone. We're the only ones that matter. Right? And again, this is a time in history of heightened Jewish nationalism. This is really a, a boiling pot in Jerusalem, which culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But you see the effect of that here. It doesn't click to them that this includes Gentiles. What does Ananias say to him after, after telling him, uh, how does he address him first? Brother who? Brother Paul? Brother Saul, right? And why would he do that? What? Get well, that's because of his name. Well, his name is Saul. The Greek form of the name is Paul. So he's referring to himself in the Jewish sense, uh, of the Jewish form of his name. Um, and, and Ananias is referring to him as a Jew. Again, all of this is it's, it's calculated and framed to, uh, to address the type of audience. That, now I'm bringing this out because when we get to the Gentile speeches on this stuff, you're going to see completely different focus. Same message, different framing, different focus. All right. He says, what does he say? He says, why do you wait? So he has Ananias say, why do you wait, be baptized, confess, you know, why, why are you holding off on this? Why do you wait um, is a Greek idiom that he has this devout Jew, Ananias, using to address this Jewish crowd. Ananias, the devout Jew, is using Greek phrasing to say, to call Paul to be baptized. Um, incidentally, is Ananias now preaching baptismal regeneration? No. No, he is? Why do you, why do you think so, Jacob? Because he said so right there. Because he said so right there. And yeah. So what, what's the focus of Ananias' statement? Is it the water? Is that what he's focusing on? What is he saying? Repent. 
Yeah, that's the, that's the primary focus, isn't it? Calling By calling on His name. So you have baptism only being a, a thing if, you're in the pro, if you are having faith in the righteous one that He's seen. Right, so it's it's pulling again in that salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. Um, so they're washed through faith and calling on His name. Paul's profession of faith in Christ is a basis for the act of baptism. All right, look at verse seventeen, and this is new. We haven't seen this before. He said, when I, returned from, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So here we have something new in Paul's personal account. This, this apparently happened on his return to Jerusalem, which we see in chapter 9, verse 26. Why would he bring this up? Why is this relevant to his apologia to the Jews? Well, because he did leave, but he came back, knowing that this is what... He's basically giving credence to the prophecy that they were. he knew they were going to do what they did. Okay. He had been to Jerusalem before, right? So his first time back was in chapter 9. Where is this vision taking place? In the temple. In the temple. What's he doing in the temple? Praying. Does a man who prays in the temple seek to defile the temple? No. And the one who answers in the temple is Jesus. And so in the very heart of Judaism, the temple, he is praying as a devout Jew, right? Which is his argument to them, I'm a devout Jew. In the temple, praying, Christ in a vision says to him, go to the Gentiles. Yeah. Which is kind of funny because the only other time I remember the word trance is when Peter's on the rooftop of what's-his-face's house. He falls into a trance. And he says, go to the Gentiles. Go to the Gentiles, yeah, yeah. So you have similar accounts in Peter. This is also... takes a trance to get Apparently. you got to knock a Jew out in order to get him to go to the Gentiles. So you have those two similar circumstances, Peter and Paul. Mary was never in a trance. Um, you have Peter and Paul. This is also similar to uh, the vision of Isaiah, the call of Isaiah. In that, I mean, you have, you, have, you know, the, the, they both experience a call or a commission. Both were told that the people would resist their message, right? Uh, Isaiah was reluctant. God told him to stay. He tells Paul to leave. So Isaiah's vision was of Yahweh, which we learned from John was pre-incarnate Christ. So you have Isaiah staying, and Isaiah's response to the call to stay in a people that aren't going to hear, that are going to be resistant to your message is what? Oh Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner. I'm not worthy to do this. I can't do this. Stay. Right? 
Paul's response to the call to leave, to go to the Gentiles, is what? What is his response? What does he say? No, here, in, in, in those verses, the, you know, 17 through 21. doesn't matter where I go, they're going to persecute me. Yeah. There's that. What does he say about his testimony to the Jews that are in Jerusalem, that Jesus is telling him to leave Jerusalem? What is his response? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the crux of it? My testimony is so awesomely awesome of the radical conversion I had to the way, why wouldn't they believe? I was more of a Jew than any of these guys were, are. And yet I see the, the beauty of Jesus. I've been transformed. Of course they would believe me. Right? To which Jesus says, get out of here, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And what do you have after he says the word Gentiles in the very next verse, what do they do? The record, <laughs> the record scratch. He said, uh, away with such a fellow from the earth, where he is not fit to live. So apparently this testimony that Paul and the temple is thinking, of course they would trust what I'm telling them. They know me. Immediate evidence of the hardness of the heart of Jews in Jerusalem to the testimony that Paul in his, logically would think would be persuasive. Their immediate response is one of uh, shouting him down and calling for his death. Uh, Paul's call to the Gentiles in Galatians 15 through 16 says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him, preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. This command to leave to Paul was possibly connected with the conflict uh, in the Hellenistic synagogue. Um, but Christ calls him to go to the Gentiles. Why did Christ call him to go to the Gentiles? What's it related to? What's the connection? It's because the Jews had rejected it's, it's a one-to-one -one relationship. They're not going to believe you. Get out of here. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And you see Paul reference that in this speech to them. Um, and, uh, and their immediate response is, away with such a one. Get him off the earth. He doesn't belong here. Jesus made this same point uh, several times. We'll wrap it up real quick. Uh, he said this in, in Luke 14. He gave a parable. He said, but he said... To him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to, to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. Those who, by the way, would make you unclean. 
And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Why in the world would Jews reject the testimony of Paul? There's no logical reason for them to do it other than the hardness of heart. There's a hardness that settled over them. Paul wrestled with this in Romans 9 through 11, which we will not go through now. But he did. this was the whole context of that section in Romans. It has, the, has the Word of God failed? These Old Testament promises to them, has it failed? He's burdened for Jews. And you see it here. He's half beaten, half dead, in chains, standing before them, telling them factual statements, historical statements, calling on them, verify these things. Trust it. They don't hear it. You say the word Gentiles, they freak out. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to verify the facts. It's a hardness of heart. It's a spiritual hardness that's going on. It has nothing to do with logic. It has everything to do with the nature of man. And so we'll see that um, he is rushed back into the barracks here in a little bit uh, next time. And, uh, and then it gets kind of interesting. Uh, he gets stretched out to be flogged, and we see what happens from that point forward. So, uh, anyway, any questions, comments on that? Okay. Uh, this is uh, the first speech of Paul to the Jews, his defense to the Jews. We'll see a few more uh, before the end of the book. And the, the argument that he has on this will be fleshed out more and more and more as he goes further along. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray for um, the next service that Christ would be made much of, that your gospel would go forth, that Philip would, um, would be um, free and clear in his proclamation of what your word would have for us today, that... Um, we would be receptive to your spirit this morning, that we'd worship in spirit and in truth. Would you remind us again of the need for wisdom and how we approach, um, how we live and how we move, how we speak to one another, how we make decisions in our church body. We pray for your wisdom uh, as we move forward today. Uh, would you be with each one of us um, as we uh, leave this place, that, that, that as we are proceeding through the holiday season, that we remind, be reminded again and again of the beauty of Jesus and our reason for thankfulness. It's in his name we pray. Amen.